Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. My guest today is Andy Robinson. Andy provides training and consulting for nonprofits, businesses, and government agencies, and is the author of several books. Andy and my conversation ranged over a number of topics, including how Andy has approached his own personal succession planning as a consultant, and the implication his approach has for nonprofit leaders. Over the past several years, Andy has been intentionally focusing on mentoring and training new consultants, and is now supporting new consultants more actively by passing on work that comes to him, especially to consultants of color. We explore why succession planning is critical to your mission, how nonprofit leaders can start taking small steps towards grooming the next generation of leaders, and why every leader needs a fool, why it's so hard for founders to let go and move on, and why it is key to have an identity outside of your career. Well, welcome, Andy. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Carol. It's good to be here with you. So just to start out, I like asking the question of all my guests of what drew you to the work that you do? What what motivates you and how would you describe your why? So you're looking for my origin story in this work? <laughs> well, I mean, it could be a more recent version of that because I'm sure it's evolved over the years. All right. Well, <clears throat> for those of you who are listening but not watching, I'm an old guy with a great beard. And my... My origin story goes back to 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected president and I was fresh out of college and I didn't know who I wanted to be when I grew up or what I wanted to do. And I was a little stunned. I was like, what? What happened here? What do I do? And so I was casting around for something to do and I opened the newspaper and I looked in the classifieds and there was a job title called activist. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. What does that mean? What do those people do? And I applied for this job and I was hired. And it turned out what I was doing was door-to-door canvassing. So I was one of those nice young people who came to your door and knocked on your door, told you about an organization, had a conversation, asked you to give money. And that was my entry point into the world of nonprofits. And I think also the worlds of, of social change, social justice and community organizing. So, um, what, moves me now is what moved me then, which is the desire to create a positive change in the world and looking for tangible ways to do it. And for the last 25 years, I've run my own consulting practice as a trainer and consultant and facilitator. And I work with groups on planning and fundraising and facilitating meetings and building leadership and some of the stuff that you also do, Carol. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that period right after college. I It took me a little bit longer, but I first job that I got was working for a company that helped people get on talk shows. And so I found that I was actually rather good at writing the, the publicity and PR for folks and decided that I wanted to apply that skill to causes that I believed in. So that's what prompted my shift into the nonprofit sector. Um, and this is sort of hilarious because you've recruited me to be on a talk show today. Well, there you go. I'm, I've come full circle, I guess. <laughs> 
So uh, you said you, you know you've been in business for a long time, and before that, obviously had a long career in the sector, and well, all, the entire career in the sector, but in, in different roles. And you're you said recently that you're kind of shifting now into semi-retirement and intentionally stepping back, taking shorter gigs. What's what's your intention in doing this? Well, there's three or four things. It's it's a it's a lovely question. Um, the first thing is my own sustainability energy. One of the pleasures of working for yourself is that you work for yourself. But one of the pleasures of working for yourself is that you often never stop working. So I'm one of those people who's often at my desk at 10 o'clock at night responding to emails that I didn't get to during the day. And, you know, I'm, I've reached the age where it's time for me to dial back my work so I can have them. So that's one answer to your question. The second answer to your question, and this sort of slides us into the topic of succession planning, it, I have been helping and supporting other people enter this work for a number of years as facilitators and trainers and consultants, and I, I help to lead a university program on this, and I'm, I'm an informal coach to a lot of people who, who are entering into supporting nonprofits and, and and the work that means. So I feel like if I step back, there's more room for others to step up. And jobs that I am not accepting and I am referring out to other people are jobs that I don't get anymore because it's okay, I have enough, I've had enough work, I don't need to do it much longer. But I'm also supporting and training and helping other people who want to enter this space. And that feels good to me. So this is my personal succession plan. And I can't say I wrote it down, but it's something I've thought about for years and I've been implementing it step by step. And the latest step is for me to work less and be more assertive about pushing jobs out to other people, especially folks who are new to consulting. Um, I'm sending a lot more work to BIPOC consultants, Black, Indigenous, people of color, as a way of supporting social justice and equity. Um, so that's my current thinking, and I'm spending more time having fun. I'm, I'm hiking out in the woods, and I'm cooking good food, and I'm spending time with my spouse, whom I adore, and uh, I still have enough work to keep things going, and that seems like a good balance right now. Yeah, and a couple of things that you talked about, you know, you've worked with other leaders on succession planning. Uh, what do you think other nonprofit leaders could could learn from your approach and how you've kind of been, it seems like you've been very intentional in how you're approaching it, yeah. which I don't think is particularly actually very well supported in our culture. <laughs> well said. Um, well, you know, I want to I want to frame this two ways. One of the things I've done with organizations over many years is strategic planning, which is also something you've done a lot of. And one of I have a couple of favorite planning questions. One of the things I ask people is, "How long will it take to win?" And they're like, "What?" And I say, "How long will it take?" For you to change the world so effectively that the work of your organization is no longer necessary. Like, what's your exit strategy, right? Now, we should acknowledge many organizations are perpetual organizations, hospitals, universities. Some of these institutions should be around forever. I totally get that. A lot of groups are trying to solve a problem and go out of business. So my first question is, how long will it take for you to win? And we spend some time chewing through that because it might be a generation or two generations or three generations, right? Depending on the organization. Then I say, are you going to be here for the victory party? And of course, everybody laughs and said, no, I'm not going to be around that long. And then I say to them, if you are not actively grooming the next generation of leadership for your organization right now, by definition, you are failing at your mission. By definition. So this is not this optional thing. Um, if you don't have a succession plan, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not building leadership as you're building your organization and doing your work and changing the world, um, 
you're failing. So that's a little aha for people. And I wanted to apply that same sort of thinking to myself. You know, so there's an old thing that people might remember if they were scouts or they learned how to backpack. You're supposed to leave the campsite in better shape than you found it. Like if you show up the campsite and there's trash, pick up the trash. You know, when you when you check out, take the trash with you. Don't let somebody else deal with the trash. And so literally I am trying to leave the campsite in better shape than I found it. And I feel like the way I can do that is by handing off and supporting and training and building other people who are coming in behind. And I will tell you, I have, I don't know the number, there's at least 50 and probably more like 100 different peers that I interact with over the course of a year in terms of sharing jobs, trading notes, doing referrals, picking each other's brains. I mean, I have an amazing network. And that's what sustained me for all the years I've been self-employed is all these lovely peers who are generous to me and I aspire to be generous to them. So if I can help people do that for themselves and build that peer network, um, what a gift, right? That's beautiful. So um, that's my intention here. And I will do it imperfectly because we all do everything imperfectly, but um, so far so good. So what would you think? What, what are some ways in which inside an organization, a leader can, can start to groom that next generation? Yeah, yeah. Well, once upon a time, um, I mean, I've done webinars on this topic. And, you know, I could probably rattle off 10 steps. I don't know that I, that's a lot. But I'll throw you two or three, which is one thing you should do is look at your task list and try and hand off, I don't know, one task a week two tasks a week. And I don't mean, <clears throat> pardon me, Carol, I don't mean the menial stuff. I mean, substantive stuff. I mean, if you're doing all the data entry and you hand that off to somebody else, sure, that's lovely, but that's not building their skill set. So that's one thing they could do is actually look at what you do and say, is there stuff that I can delegate reasonably, appropriately, without burdening other people, but also takes me out of the center of things. That's one idea. Second idea, and this speaks to the facilitation work that you and I both do, is when I'm building an agenda, and I'm figuring out who's going to lead what section of the agenda. I want multiple people leading different parts of the agenda because the ability to, to run a meeting, facilitate a conversation is a leadership skill. So I am currently chairing a board and I had a board meeting last night. So this is top of mind. And as I was building the board agenda, I had about, I think, five different people leading different parts of the meeting. And so that's a second idea. If you're actually bringing groups together, share the power within the group. So that you have that sort of agenda where people are taking turns facilitating and leading and, and building the conversation. Um, the third one is one that I've touched on already, which is don't be a perfectionist. And there's the classic thing you see is that you have a leader who wants it done their way. And often somebody else has a different way of doing it that is different, but could be just as effective or differently effective or weaker in some ways, but stronger in ways that your way isn't. And so part of it is accepting the fact that other people do things, they think about problems or challenges or opportunities differently, they approach them differently. And, you know, viva la difference, that's something that should be embraced by leaders as opposed to we have one way we do things here. So those are some ideas. I mean, I kick this back to you. I know you think about this. When you're advising leaders on succession and distributing power, what, what tips do you offer? Well, it's interesting that you talked about delegation because I think people, you know, think about that. That's an obvious one. But yet folks struggle with it for so much. And I think it goes to the last point that you talked about. And I've been in situations where I've had dele things delegated to me. And the, the leader has told me explicitly that, that you know, no, you, you know, however you approach it is great. 
until I stumble upon the way that they actually wanted me to do it. <laughs> you know? and, and I think it's not even conscious on their part, right? It's not right. their, their yeah. conscious yeah. intention was yeah. to hand this off and let me run with it. And then, you know, I approach it differently and, and it was like, Ooh, well, wait a second, not so much. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think you can then ideally you then have a conversation to figure out what's the middle ground between the two. I don't know that I always handled it that way. Um, because I think my perpetual lesson that I've had to learn over and over again is indeed that people do things differently than, than I would do them. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you've done any anti-racism training, anti-oppression training, one of the first things they talk about is the difference between intention and impact. Sure. Right? And often we have very good, positive, sacred, holy, high-minded intentions, but we're clueless about the impact we're having on other people. And this is one of those examples. It's like, my intention is to give this job to you, but the impact I'm having is I'm micromanaging you while you're doing it. And right. I'm not even conscious that I'm doing that. So, I mean, I have a, a mental way to do this, which is I would have people imagine there's a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum, I'm pointing to my left, are people who are really good at empowering others and supporting others and delegating. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, pointing to my right, People's response is, you know, the heck with it. I'm just going to do it myself. It's easier to just do it myself. And full disclosure here is I live down at that right end, second end of the spectrum. My default button is, you know, the heck with it. I'm just going to do it myself. It's easier. And what's interesting here is I have spent an entire lifetime trying to move myself down that line to the opposite end of the spectrum and getting myself out of the way. So, I mean, I don't know if this is today's topic, but I will touch on it. Um, I carry a lot of privilege. I'm an upper middle class, white, cisgendered, straight male. I have an Ivy League education. I'm able-bodied. I mean, I have, I have all the markers. I have English as my first language. I, I, am, I have all the markers of privilege. And I feel like my work for the last several years and maybe the last decade is to shrink my footprint and take up less space. And because that's what, that's what privilege is, is you take up a lot of space that you're not even aware that you're taking up. So... And I'll talk about this in front of groups and, you know, if there's a chance to bring this into a training or a facilitation and there's a moment to have this conversation, I'll have it. But one of the ways that I can delegate um, perhaps in an, I won't use the word unintentional, but as a secondary way is to just take up less space, you know, to speak less, to shrink my presence in whatever way that looks like, because that creates space for other people to step in and, and embrace their leadership skills. So I am like the amazing shrinking man. <laughs> and I still take up, I, mean, I still take up huge amounts of space, but I'm mindful of it, and I'm checking that whenever I can. And I think that's a succession planning strategy too. Is if you're a leader, how do you take up less space so that other people can occupy that space? Um, and how do you really um, underline that and embrace that as a as a strategy and a tool? Yeah. So one of them is is just let's say you you know you're you're discussing a topic with a group and um, trying to figure out different ways that you might approach it, brainstorming. And if the leader can take a beat and not be the first person to talk, classic can be huge. And yeah. And, you know, and I, I have I have facilitated a couple of online retreats over the last year where I've had leaders say to me, I'm, I'm going to say very little. I'm going to not speak first. I'm going to step back intentionally. This is me not telling. This is them coming to me and saying, FYI, if you see me being quiet, it's me stepping back. And my response is, thank you. And if I, if I feel as a facilitator, I need their voice, I can call on them and say, you know, Martha, 
haven't heard from you yet on this. What's your thinking? And I can cue them when needed. But that's a that's a great level of self-awareness. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that. Yeah. And there's some tools. I mean, for brainstorming, there's some tools that you can use to help everybody's voice get in the room by just having people, you know, write things down first, like, you know, the yeah. classic sticky notes and, and now in the virtual space on something like Mural or Jamboard. And, you know, before anybody says anything, allowing people a few minutes to, you know, get their ideas out onto the board and, um, you know, in some cases you can trace who said what, but most people, by the time they're on there, they're not paying that much attention to it. And so it gives space for people, all, you know, all the folks who are participating to step in. Um, and, and one other thing that you talked about of that kind of rotating facilitation, which is a simple thing. I was um, uh, in this past year, I've been teaching folks um you know, how, how to, to facilitate effectively online. And I was working with an intact team um, walking through the program and then they were trying to think about, okay, so how do we actually, the classic challenge with training of how do we actually make this stick? How do we, you know, that was nice, but you know, we did it in your session. How do we actually start implementing this in, um, in practice? And yeah. so, you know, we talked about them using it in internal meetings first so that the stakes are lower. And so when I, I had my one-on-one -on -one with the, their, their leader, um, one of the things we talked about, I was like, well, okay, so what kind of meetings do you typically lead? And he always led their, their weekly staff meeting. I was like, well, what if, what if you rotated that? And, you know, the intention there was to make sure that everyone was practicing facilitation. But as you say, facilitation and leading a meeting, thinking about an agenda, you know, how are you guiding the group? How are you guiding the conversation? What questions are you asking is in self leadership skills. So just by that, by him stepping back and saying, no, I'm not going to be the default, you know, on a weekly meeting that doesn't, it doesn't need to be me is an easy first step to take. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things I'm noticing about all these Zoom meetings is all the boxes are the same size. <laughs> and if you're fairly skillful, I mean, my experience of Zoom so far is that the alphas who tend to dominate, it's a little harder to do it in that environment. And especially if there's some good facilitator helping work the process, um, the alphas are less alpha and that creates an equity opportunity. So what's one of the things I'm appreciating about all these virtual meetings is I think they do level the playing field a little bit if you handle them properly. Um, right. And again, it all goes back to how you're structuring them. And, um, and, and I think it's interesting to also watch how some people who might not speak up then have access to the chat. And so, you know, they, they, they may not be um, contributing verbally to the meeting, but they're contributing often very coherent and, quite, you know, eloquent thoughts in the chat. Uh, so, you know, make, there's, it just gives people different ways to kind of interact with the group and, and contribute, um, again, as you said, as if you, uh, you know, kind of position it well. So, Carol, can I bring some Shakespeare into the conversation? Sure. In many, many Shakespearean tragedies, there is a fool. And the fool is the person who says to the king when the king is being a jerk, and, you know, maybe gets whipped or beaten a little bit, but for the most part, it is their job to speak truth to power. And I feel like if you're a leader and you're thinking about succession, you need to designate somebody in your organization who will call you out when you're overstepping your boundaries and not be punished for. Um, so I think I think every leader needs a fool who they trust and love, but who will speak truth to them and saying, you've, oh, you're overstepping here or you're, you're AWOL, what's up? Or you really handle that one. You could handle that one differently than you did. And it takes some courage to have somebody who is your designated 
call you out person. You know, and it doesn't have to be publicly, it can be privately. Like, you know, FYI, at that meeting, you missed an opportunity. I want to share with you what I saw that opportunity was. So sometimes as the consultant, we fill that role. Sometimes our job is to speak truth to power and name things that people don't want to talk about because they're difficult. Um, but even if you had somebody like that within your organization who had that role and, and handled it deftly, uh, that's a succession tool as well. So what, what are we, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but what are some of the mistakes that you've seen leaders make when thinking about their exit or perhaps not even not even thinking about it? Yeah. And well, then that broader transition that's, you know, because it's never just one thing. There's always a ripple effect yeah, right that goes on. through the organization. There's a guy named Dom Tebby who's written a lot about this. And one of his quotes is, leading well is leaving well. <laughs> or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's leaving well is leading well. It works either way. Um, so first of all, we have to lift that up as a value. It's, it's okay to leave well. In terms of mistakes, oh, let us count the ways. Um, I think a classic mistake is hanging on too long, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle of the baby boom. I'm boomer through and through boomers. We need to step aside. <laughs> and I acknowledge that maybe you haven't saved all the money you need to retire. or Maybe you're having too much fun, or maybe there's still work to do that you want to do. And that's awesome. And time to step aside, at least figuring out what that looks like for you. So one thing is just hanging on too long. And, you know, it is it is sort of baked into the system, but the skills that one needs to start a company, a business, an organization, to start anything is a different skill set that is required to build it to maturity. And it's few people that have both of those skill sets. So you and I have both dealt with this thing called founder's disease or founder syndrome or founderitis, right? And God bless founders because we need them. They make stuff happen. They are amazing people. But founders sometimes leave trouble in their wake. So I think one thing we have to do is to be mindful of that as we're doing this. You know, you and I have both worked with boards where there's been board members on the board for 20 or 30 years. Term limits is a whole nother thing here that we can be thinking about in terms of a succession plan is that even if the staff leadership turns over, you still have the same people on the board with the same set of assumptions and, you know, the same story that goes back to 1993 about why we should be doing this. And it's a different world. So that'd be a second mistake. And I'll kick this back to you. I can come up with more. But I mean, what have you seen as the biggest challenge to succession? What gets in the way? Well, one that was interesting, I was working with a group where it was that classic thing of the the board members, you know, originating founder. The founder was still on the board. You know, some of the founding board members were still there. And I think part of the challenge, like, and the person, you know, said that they wanted to step back, said that they were tired and they didn't, you know, they wanted to, to groom new people, mm. said all the right thing. And again, behaved in the op absolute opposite way of micromanaging staff and, you know, questioning uh, if a board, the, if the board made a decision, then going, you know, around the board to undermine it when they didn't agree. And, and I think what was part of that challenge, and I think for many people, is that for that person, it was so much part of their identity. Yes that they couldn't imagine what they would be without leading yes. that organization. Yes. So I, I came up in an era, I mean, again, my career started in 1980. I came up in an era where if you were working for nonprofits, especially these, you know, heavily mission-driven nonprofits, the assumption was you were, you would bleed for the cause and you'd come in early and you'd stay late and it was your life. And one, things I, one thing I'm loving about working with millennials is they actually want to have a life outside of the office and an identity that's not connected to their jobs. And that's great. Um, so I think the problem is a generation that came up the way that I came up, which is your identity is your work and your identity is 
the causes that you care about. And there's something positive about that. I mean, that that's commitment and that's powerful, but it's also destructive. So yeah, you're right. I think we have to have identities that are at least we can separate from the work we do or the organizations we're involved with. I think you named, the, that is the classic problem. These people won't let go because their identities are tied up in the work. And they, they yeah, feel, and then they feel, you know, less than, or they don't, they're not useful or, you know, they have no purpose without, without this work that they're doing. And I mean, I guess for me, I, you know, I saw my dad struggle with that. He was kind of the greatest generation and, yeah. and dedicated every minute of his working life to his working life and, you know, just struggled as a, a, when he retired or when he was really, you know, they, it was in a system where you, you had to retire at a certain and um, because everything about his adult life had been wrapped up yeah. in that job. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of watching the difference. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she, uh, but she also, um, you know, she like we he was in the foreign service, so we traveled around the world. And every mm. new country, she would get mm. a new degree. Wow! So she entertained herself by getting degrees, <laughs> That's and taking care of us. Wow! But you know, but then like, but she was never as attached to those. I don't think in the same way. It just wasn't the same. And so for me, going into the workforce, you know, I always had the and and my my tagline for the podcast is how you know how to be in the nonprofit sector without being a martyr to the cause Mm -hmm. because i just think that martyr syndrome is just so toxic to our sector and so i've always want you know tried to think about well there's work and then there you know then it's not that there's like work in life like your work is part of your life right it's not that separate but how do you kind of keep cultivating other communities other networks and other aspects um that you want to develop i mean i I do know a lot of people through my faith community who are um, retired, and I've just I've seen some amazing transformations of you know someone who was a a lawyer who specialized in some incredibly arcane aspect of you know law, who then after he retired and he struggled to retire, it took him like five years from when he started talking about it to when he actually did, um, but then started taking classes, started taking art classes at the local community college, and be, has become quite the you know. I don't think he was trying to become a great artist, you know, but but he's become quite accomplished yeah. and, and yeah. really enjoys that. So kind of exploring different aspects of yourself I is, like is important, I think. You know, and, and I will argue that our greatest ex-president is Jimmy Carter. Mm, yeah, you know, he did, you know, a lifetime's worth of work after he left the White House. Right. 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 Um, amazing things, amazing things. And so, yeah, I mean, that's someone who had a third act or a fourth act or however you want to count it. Um, so yeah, it's certainly possible to have a life after work. <laughs> May we all have that. Yeah. And, you and know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I've also worked with, um, yes, and you named it, you named it. So I'll, I'll say it, the baby boomers who be having conversations with me and I, and, and, you know, just baffled with this baffled look on their face of, I just don't know where the leaders are going to come from. Oh. And I'm like, okay, I know when you started being a leader, you were like 15 years younger than me in your career, <laughs> but you don't think that I could possibly be in that role, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, that's right. I'm, I'm carrying the shame of an entire generation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't, we won't require you to do that's that. That's fine. I, you know, I'm owning it. I'm good with it. I, I see the problem. It's, it's, you know. It's it's the old thing. It's you know. It's like men have to talk to men about sexism and misogyny, and white there you go. talk to white people about racism, and boomers have to talk to boomers about letting it go. So here we are. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. 
Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. At the end of every episode, I play a game where I ask one uh, icebreaker question from this box of icebreaker questions that I have. So since we've been talking about, you know, second, third acts, fourth acts, mm-hmm. retirement, what's the last thing that you completed on your bucket list? And that assumes, of course, that you have a bucket list. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we, we just bought uh, an electric vehicle. Oh, wow. Yeah, from a neighbor. So we got a secondhand Chevy Bolt, and I've been driving it for the last month, and I'm learning all the bells and the whistles but it's one of the things and actually we had a charger installed in our garage some time ago and then we were going to buy another car this is more detail than you need but anyway um i wanted to get an ev and now i have one so that was on the bucket list and it has been completed excellent excellent well when when our cars die and we're waiting well we're just you know watching them and they will die soon to try to try to buy an electric vehicle and probably we'll probably end up with a used one because we uh we ended up with a, a used prius so Good. Uh, that'll be next. So, so what what are you excited about? What's coming up next for you? Um, we talking about work or or fun or where do you want to go? Whatever with this? you, wherever you want to go. Well, I will say this. Um, next Thursday, which is the twenty eighth, no, excuse me, the twenty fifth, I am teaming up with my buddy Harvey McKinnon, who is one of North America's great fundraisers. He's written many books. He's a lot of fun, and he and I are doing a webinar together um, called "Raising More Money by Asking and Answering Better Questions," and um, it's all about questions that donors think that you really have to anticipate an answer, but also questions you can ask donors to deepen the conversation. So it's a fundraising webinar. It's sponsored by the Sustainability Network, which is Canada's national support network for the environment. And that's on the 25th. So people can track it down, go to my website, you'll see the information there. And so that's coming up. And that's something I'm excited about. So this episode will probably be published after that happens. So will that be possible for people to access it after the fact? Or is that something that uh, I suspect it'll be a a great question. I don't know. Um, But I suspect if they go to the website for the sustainability network, which is sustainability network.ca and poke around there, you may find it. If not, um, reach out to me and I'll put you on my list for future events. I'm doing lots of webinars and trainings. Someday I may actually go back on the road again when that's allowed. (laughs) We'll see. And I look forward to to supporting you in whatever way I can. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you this morning. Thank you, Carol, for inviting me. It was fun talking with you too. and, And have a good day, everybody. I appreciate Andy's statement that if you are not actively grooming the next generation of leadership for your organization right now, By definition, you're failing at your mission. I wonder how many nonprofit leaders think about that aspect of their mission regularly. Succession planning is one of those things that's easy to put off till tomorrow when you have, you know, more time to focus on it. It's one of those items in Stephen Covey's important but not urgent quadrant. Yet, it doesn't have to be dramatic or something that takes a huge investment of time and energy. Just take a look at your to-do list and think about, what could I hand off? And, as Andy says, not just the boring menial stuff. What is something that you can do in your sleep that would be a learning opportunity for someone on your team? Yes, it will take a little longer than just doing it yourself, the time that you invest in explaining it and handing it off, 
and then getting another person's perspective on how they might approach it differently takes a little bit of time, but it serves you and your team. How could you share leadership of meetings? What are other ways that you could share power? Who are you giving stretch assignments to? And are you giving them the support they need to be successful? Investing in those around you and helping them develop their leadership capacity will, you, will serve you, your colleagues, your organization, and ultimately the movement that you're part of. What could you do tomorrow to begin developing the people around you that could start that ripple effect? Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. We want to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Thanks and see you next time.